You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Socolo, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. My guest this week is Steve Forzato. After 33 years of law enforcement, 28 of which were as an undercover agent in narcotics and trafficking, now for the last two and a half years, he's been the director for the Center of Addiction and Recovery Education at St. Joseph's University. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate it. Tell us a little bit about CARE, about the Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. What's your 30-second elevator pitch? Laura, the Center for Addiction and Recovery Education at St. Joseph's University addresses the public health crisis and the harm caused by substance use disorder, by addiction. And so our focus is to to address this subject uh, that really half of us, half of Americans are affected by. And so we all probably know someone, whether a close family member, distant family member, or a colleague or our friends that have children that are engaged in substance use. And, you know, today it's a lot different than it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, when I had friends that would smoke pot or snort cocaine or use meth, um, the harm was they probably didn't complete their education. They probably lost the job. They lost the respect in their family and so forth. Nowadays, the harm caused by addiction is oftentimes lethal, and particularly with the opioid crisis. And so St. Joe's really thought through, we want to address the social and public health issue. And so they started the Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. So this is not necessarily an addiction center. You're not helping the people who themselves have the addiction. You're working with the periphery. You're working with the family members, with the friends, the people who you're teaching people who know someone who's struggling with an addiction about how to help that person for themselves, how to have those conversations of sorts. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, you are. It's all about education. And so learning involves, you know, imputing knowledge to people, as well as getting people to sort of check their beliefs and their attitudes and make sure they align correctly. And so we partner with Hazel and Betty Ford Foundation, Karen Treatment Center, and other groups to really develop incredible educational curriculum about addiction, why people continue to use, knowing it's harmful, knowing it could kill them. There's a reason why that is as well as how to speak with people in active addiction and motivate them to enter treatment. It's interesting thinking about how to motivate or how to influence people, how to persuade people who are under the influence of some controlled substance. I mean, most of the people I have on the show and everybody I work with, clients and everybody else's, it's all about working with people to up their influence and their persuasive abilities, et cetera, for people who ostensibly are not under some sort of chemical influence. So I would imagine it's that much harder when you're working with someone who is not necessarily in possession of all their faculties and because there is some other influence that changes their ability to perceive reality. That's got to be just adding about 14 extra layers. Yes. Substances really do hijack the brain and its pathways. 
And so someone that is not using substances, you can have a really great conversation back and forth. Whereas someone in active addiction, there's just this impulse to, to want to use, to be under the influence, and it overrides any sort of common sense that you and I, you know, experience right now. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a different way. You, you need to learn in communicating with people you love, people you don't know that you come across. You need to learn to evoke from them things that sort of have been recessed deep down inside and try to get them to come out of the fog and the haze. Funny, because I feel like people who are not under the influence, when you're trying to influence someone you ardently disagree with, you have the same metaphorical feelings, at least, that these people are not rational thinkers and that you want them to come out of the haze necessarily. But uh, we're in this case, we're talking about literally not able to gain full connection with their logical, rational brain. So I would imagine that makes it even more difficult. So let's dig in. Given how difficult that must be, what's your favorite part of your job and why? Where's the good part? So after 28 years being undercover in law enforcement, my three decades long career, I spent a lot of time targeting drug dealers, drug suppliers, and all a host of other people engaged in crime. And so it's one of the greatest things about that is sort of coming out from that persona. My undercover name was Tony Rendazzo. Love it. And it it was nice to sort of shed the lies, Laura, I'll be honest, to shed the persona of this Tony Rendazzo character that I created and really just be honest and forthright with people about who I am and what I care about. And so in the Center for Addiction and Recovery Education, you know, I sort of get to come out and say, you know what? I am not the drug dealer or the gun trafficker that I portrayed for so long. I am actually a human being who cares about people. And so the greatest part of my job is that I get to make a difference. In my decades-long career, I was around people shooting heroin, snorting meth, you know, smoking weed, doing all kinds of substances, and I really didn't know how to help people. I didn't know how to do an intervention. I wish I understood because I had the opportunity. In this position in academia where I run this center, you know, I get to make up for lost opportunities. And mm-hmm. that means a lot to me. I hated to see when people overdosed and died, lost their marriages, lost the respect of their children. You know, that always bothered me. But my focus was different. I tried to take off the supply of drugs. And uh, but now I feel like I can come out and really be who I am. Yeah. It must have been hard to see all these people who were struggling and feeling like you were desperately wanting to help them, but knowing that it was not in the purview of the, you know, it was outside the scope of what needed to happen for the bigger goals. That had to be heartbreaking on many levels. So I'm glad that you get to now go one-on-one and help each person as they come across your path. That's got to feel like an incredible release or cathartic. Yeah. It was like a weight was lifted from my shoulders. Listen, I applaud the courageous work of detectives and and law enforcement that accomplished their job and do it well and do it fairly. But it was nice to sort of take that off of my shoulders and then just really be who I am, who I was raised to be. Yeah, and it certainly puts everything into perspective, makes you thankful for what you have, makes me thankful for all that I have as well, and also puts my problems into perspective. It's like, okay, what what am I really whining about today? What am I complaining about today? My mother always used to say, Laura, your worst problems are your worst problems. You know, so if the worst thing that happens is in a day is that, okay, you've got a hangnail or, you know, you ran out of whatever in the refrigerator, it's like, okay, you whine about it because that's 
comparatively the worst thing you have to complain about in the day. That that's a good day, but we tend to over dramatize them just because it's it's what's there in the moment. When you you're dealing with addiction and and those kinds of things, it really does put a lot into perspective. Uh, the first world problems that we suffer from, as it were. Now, what's something that is exciting or important? or upcoming for you in your industry? And how do you have to adjust your messaging when you're talking to different stakeholder groups about it? So police chiefs, for example, I desperately want to train my former colleagues on how to address people in active addiction and connect people to treatment. But these police chiefs, they're pretty tough. They have a lot of responsibility for public safety in their community, and they really don't want to add another duty for themselves and for their officers. For example, there's police chiefs that just want to lock everybody up. We find somebody with a bag of heroin and they just want to arrest for possession when that is probably the best opportunity for an officer at that department to engage the person and guide them into treatment. And so the stakeholders will say to me oftentimes, you cannot redefine my officers' roles to become drug and alcohol counselors and psychiatrists and psychologists. That's not what their job is. And I totally agree with that. You know, I walked in their shoes. I know I didn't have time to sit down and have a 30-minute counseling and therapy session with an individual. I probably had four or five minutes where I could sort of deposit some confidence in treatment that it works. And by the way, are you ready? Asking questions, are you ready? Let me help you. And so so with that audience of those that would actually devote training time, which is very little training time in government service and public service in the industry. But when I talk to politicians, Laura, they're all excited. A lot of them never walked in the shoes of EMS and firefighters. And so when I present my program, they readily accept it because they see the value of it, but they also see their own personal value. If they're able to stand on a stage in front of their constituents and say, you know, look what I'm doing. I'm doing something different. Those are two different groups. They privately fight with each other. So when you have a politician telling a chief of police, you must do this training, the chief of police, you know, will probably end up doing it, but, you know, he won't be very happy about it. So let me back that up a little bit because there's on the one hand, to say that we're letting people know that this program exists, the politicians are super ready to accept it. The chiefs of police may be more hesitant to do so. So how do you have to adjust? What's your pitch difference to each of them? Or what is it that you're focusing on in your approach to them, knowing that one group is much more open to the concept overall of providing training because you're, you're talking to both groups about providing training for the officers who are actually in the field to be able to empower them with greater skills to help those who are dealing with addiction. So it's multiple layers, isn't it? There's the person who's you're talking to the politician in some ways and or the politician is talking to the chief of police or you could be talking to the chief of police. Either way, that chief has to talk to the officers and give the officers training to work with the people suffering from addiction. It's quite the chain of command there. So when you're talking to those, you know, the first level versus second level in that communication chain, knowing that there's going to be pushback from the chiefs. What do you have to say to them? What do you have to either not say or remember to include to help them be more open to receiving what is important 
but is going to add more to their plates that are already overflowing. That This is their biggest concern, right? If you know that their objection is it's just going to add more work to my guy's plates and there's no more time, there's no more budget, they can't handle one more thing. How do you handle that objection? So I tried and failed in messaging in that regard. And so my first meeting with a chiefs of police association, the elected district attorney attended, and it was very difficult to sort of cater to both groups in one session. And so the district attorney stood up, said, this is what I want done in law enforcement in our area, introduced me. And I had to sort of massage him a little bit and support him. But the chiefs of police were upset. It's like, this is one more thing. What I learned to do was separate those audiences and those pitches. And so I do get to the politician first because I need that support. But then I individually or separately meet with the law enforcement or the Department of Corrections or probation and parole. I meet with those leaders and I let them know we understand it, care, the training time restrictions. We know that you're already doing too much. And by having a separate conversation where they feel comfortable sort of talking outside of that political environment, we make a good connection. I tell them, I walked in your shoes. I get your point. I understand that you're not a drug and alcohol counselor, but you can do this. So separating those audiences and those pitches to me has been successful. So it sounds like for the chiefs, it's a couple of things. One is giving them having a separate venue where they can talk with a less guarded nature, not worrying about what the politicians or what other people are going to hear and what could be turned around and used against them. And then the fact that you get to relate to them more one-on-one and from the, look, I've been in your shoes. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugliest, frankly. So and for them to be able to know that you get it because you've been there, I would assume that that's a, a really big factor in helping them trust you that it's possible that because you were there for three decades. Absolutely. In Western Pennsylvania, I was a guest to present at a conference of police chiefs and fire and EMS leaders. And the person that accompanied me was the head of the public health department in Pennsylvania. And the sort of first responder community really catered to me. And they opened up and shared you know, the frustration they have about addiction in their community, and they're tired of going to calls where they have to deploy Narcan, while other people on the highway are crashing their cars, and they get distracted by these addiction-related medical emergencies. And it was really unusual, Laura, that they would say this in front of the Secretary of Health for Pennsylvania. Mm. But what I learned is that if you do separate them, we exchange war stories, you know, and I give and I take. And so, That back and forth with my people really does help them understand that I'm sincere, I'm authentic. You know, this is not something where I'm just trying to raise my own profile. This is something that's really critically important for you, your officers, and by the way, your families. That's the buy-in. It's not just the people out there. It's their own families to prevent and protect from overdoses. Sure, sure. And in learning to speak these different languages of sorts from whether it's the politicians or the police chiefs, et cetera, I'm sure there have been many other groups as well. Has learning those different languages at all been a difficult learning process? And has there been any challenge in learning to be more yourself in one group versus another? Laura, you would not have liked Tony Rendazzo most of the time. He was, I don't even want to use the words what he was. But he was tough. He was tense. 
and he was aggressive. There were other times, you know, Tony Rendazzo played a more subservient role, but people wouldn't like it. By the way, every time I drove home from an assignment, I had to turn Tony Rendazzo off. I had to put him in the trunk of the car to be a father to my children and a husband to my wife. And so, boy, it was very difficult in those days. But I'll give you a story about Tony Rendazzo. Please. So one time I arrested a, a young man. He had about four ounces of cocaine in a rural part of Pennsylvania. And he was interested in helping himself. And so he told me his source supply was New York City and that he met this Colombian drug trafficking organization at 101st of Broadway up in Manhattan. And so I put him in the car. I said, are you ready? And he said, yeah, I'm very afraid. I said, come on. I, that Tony Rendazzo came out. I said, come on, you're going to work for me. You're going to meet my brother. He's a DE agent in New York City. We're going to get this job done. It's going to look really good for you. So I drove him up to New York City, met DEA. We did a little brief and up to a McDonald's that was at 101 and B-Way. And we made the deal. We bought a kilo of cocaine. Uh, there was a foot chase. and He knew you were undercover at this point. He was going to work for you that way. Or you, he thought you, so he didn't think you were Tony. He knew you were Steve. He knew I was Steve, but, okay. but this Tony oozed out of every part of my career. Okay. And so what I did is I convinced him to do something that was dangerous so that he could help himself and show, you know, ultimately the sentencing judge that he tried to help in furthering this drug investigation. And so we did the case. The kilo was delivered. We made arrest. And on the way down on the West Side Highway to DEA headquarters in lower Manhattan, I got a phone call. And the phone call was from one of these three-letter agencies that does a lot of intelligence work. And I don't want to name who they are. No problem. But I had made an application. And I, I really wanted to do this stuff, not just in Pennsylvania or New York or south by the border. I really wanted to do this stuff worldwide. Mm. And so I applied to this agency. And on the phone call, they asked me in a pre-interview, just on the phone, they said, can you give me an example of when you got somebody to do something and essentially manipulated them to do something that was dangerous or potentially dangerous to themselves to accomplish an overall mission? Hmm. And I said, well, it's funny you say that. Yeah. I was just at 101st of Broadway. I got a guy to you know, buy a kilo of Coke for me. And we're driving down the West Side Highway to go to the office and debrief. In fact, you know, why don't you talk to him? And I threw the phone in the back seat, and my confidential source mm. ended up talking to this three-letter agency and says, I don't know who you are, but yeah, Steve got me to do something, yeah. and I was scared to do it, but I accomplished it. You know, And so Tony Rendazzo was outside the box. He was out of control. He was grandiose, much more than I am personally. You know, it was like a role that I played. But playing a role, I think, is also important in all the work that I do, that we do. You know, we have all have different sides of our personality. And so when I make pitches, sometimes it's grandiose and, you know, it's all authentic, but it's grandiose. And other times it's quiet listening. And sometimes I look back at my undercover career and I think about the situations that Tony Rendazzo was in and how literally I was able to saved my own life by how it is that I read the room and responded to conversations that were thrown my way. I think it's important to recognize that a point of distinction between what you were experiencing there and what most people have to do when they're shifting roles is that you literally were playing a role. You were playing a part. You were acting or pretending or having to be somebody else 
because of the nature of the job. And this is different from what most people are often feeling challenged with insofar as that's the opposite of what we want in that we never want people to feel inauthentic, like they're playing a role. I, I always have the disclaimer, I am not an actor. I'm not a trained performer. I am a linguist. I am a teacher. So I couldn't teach someone to act if my life depended on it. That would just be ugly. You want to see something ugly? Hand me a Shakespearean script and say, do something with this. You know, the best you're going to get is a paper airplane. And even that's not going to be very good because I'm not an engineer either. But the notion that in order to create this character, Randazzo, Tony Randazzo, to be as compelling as he was, because it was life or death. If they didn't believe you, you would probably not have lived through this situation, that you have to learn to accept that persona, but recognize that it does tend to influence your other conversations later on. And to be able to really draw that line and say, and I'm turning it on, turning it off, it's uniquely a skill that is necessary that in that particular role. And I'm sure there are times probably when you can draw from him, maybe times when you wouldn't have been as confident, but been able to draw and say, look, I just looked down the barrel of a gun earlier this afternoon. I pulled out the bravado. I pulled out this. I pulled out that and managed to get out. So, OK, you know what? This other situation that I now have to deal with, which I'm a little intimidated by. You know what? I can stand up for this one. And it's not as scary comparatively. You draw from one to the other, but not in a way where you're faking it anymore. That's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. So what police work does for someone, as well as the undercover work in my Tony Randazzo persona, is when I look at my job now in academia, where it's safe. By the way, I haven't carried my gun since I retired from law enforcement. I just feel this is a whole different world in higher education. I just feel very, very safe. But when people argue with me, and I don't have many arguments, but sometimes people, you know, I'm not really used to higher education and I sometimes don't follow the rules because I don't know them. Sure. And when people get upset at me, I just think in the back of my mind, I have faced armed criminals. You know, I can handle situations like this. I mean, it almost makes me a calm person later in my life because of what I faced, you know, throughout my career. And I think that's important in communication to be able to, despite the fact inside, you might be all fired up and angry or all fired up and nervous, you know, being able to sort of just face the situation and have some confidence you can get through it. Laura, this interview is a great example. <laughs> you know, I, quite frankly, inside I'm nervous. You know, but I took this challenge and I decided, yes, I'm going to I'm going to do my first podcast with you. And, you know, I faced this challenge. If I could face guns, I could face this challenge. Well, I'm glad to know that I haven't quite reached the the status of looking down the barrel of a gun. You're looking into the lens of a camera, which for some people is more intimidating than the barrel of a gun. But we're all really glad that you've taken this challenge on and shared your stories. It's funny how different challenges put stuff into perspective. You know, I right out of college, my first few years, I was teaching in South Central Los Angeles uh, in the public schools and, you know, which is a tough neighborhood. You know, a friend of mine was a cop and used to say the only real difference between my job and his was that I wasn't allowed to carry so it was a, kind of a different world there. But, you know, when I shifted later on and did move into higher education and was uh, applying for a teaching fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, where I was going to do my PhD. And I remember the interview, the dean said to me, you know, one of her questions was, you know, how do you handle difficult students, you know, problem students? And I thought to myself, oh, my God, you have them here, too? I mean, my gosh, it's an Ivy League university. What? Like, and I didn't really know how to answer the question because... So I asked her, I said, could you be a little more specific? Like, what, what kind of problem students are you 
describing? What kind of problems are you really dealing with? And she said, well, you know, there are sometimes students just they don't complete their assignments or, you know, they just don't show up for class and whatever. Exactly. Like even your face right now, for people who can't say, like, he just leaned back like, oh, for heaven's sake, kind of, you know, hands up. And I thought to myself, you know, you've got those here. And when she's describing that, I said, so, oh, you don't mean so nobody's like throwing chairs or no one comes in with weapons in their bags or nobody's coming. And she went, oh, my goodness. No, 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 nothing like that. And I just burst out laughing. And I, I said to her, respectfully, you don't have problem students. We'll be fine. Yeah. And that when I realized perhaps that was a disrespectful answer on my part. I didn't mean to be dismissive about it, but it was just like, oh, for Pete's sakes, those aren't problem students. And I think she was kind of glad that I wasn't going to make a big deal out of what other people would have made big deals out of. It'd be interesting to sort of know what her perspective was. I mean, she never engaged students in South Central LA, no. you know, and, and you know, how is her life different than you? I think her life is sort of, you know, she's just very well protected and she's never experienced what you experienced or what Tony Rendazzo, what I, what I experienced. I think you got to live your life to the fullest. You do have to take chances. You know, I've been robbed when I was a young person in Seattle, when I lived in a very economically challenged neighborhood in Seattle. I got robbed on own vacation in Moscow. I was targeted in Novikuznesk. I went to Russia to try to help orphans and children and addicts. Mm. And so all along the way, those experiences, they only made me better. I mean, if you survive them. Anyway, I just encourage people to, to really think about the depth of their lived experience. And hopefully that empowers them to be better communicators in their business, in their family lives, and, and so forth, because those stories make us. Yes. Yes, they absolutely do. They certainly frame, I don't think they need to define who we are or where we go, but they absolutely will influence it and give us some perspective and some inspiration for who we want to become, that's for sure. Now, this is a chance, Steve, for you to talk directly to our audience. This is our Listener 24-Hour Influence Challenge. Please give our audience an instruction, one step, that they can take and complete within 24 hours to be able to have more influence. How do you want to challenge our listeners today? I'm going to challenge your listeners with the opposite of the Tony Rendazzo character that I played. The real Steve Rosado, I did this. You know, I rose up in leadership, not real high. I, I rose from investigator, detective, lieutenant to deputy chief. And along the way, this is the real Steve Rosado in the office, Okay. I rewarded people for very small achievements. I became a team builder. People began to respect me more than they did other supervisors they've ever had. When I left law enforcement, they literally were very upset, the people that were that I supervised. And why is that? Because I challenge the audience today to look for the opportunity to reward an employee, a family member. I'm not talking about going out and buying plaques and writing up certificates, those are all nice and appropriate at times. I'm talking about just rewarding someone verbally. And so I'm going to give you an example. And hopefully this example will break through. But people in active addiction, I want you to imagine if you are someone who's using opioids, heroin, you eventually lose all the support systems in your life. Mm -hmm. Your family no longer respects you. Your employer gets rid of you. Your friends start to not want to answer your phone calls because it's always about money and this and that. And you could end up, many do end up weeks and months and years without anyone ever saying, you know, hey, I believe in you. I want to help you. And so we train police officers to engage people in active addiction and ask questions like, are you ready for help? 
Are you ready for treatment? And ultimately, a lot of times people reply and they'll say, I went to treatment before, but it didn't work. But Laura, there was an opportunity in what they said to reward, if you can identify it. The person said, I went to treatment before. It didn't work. Reject that. The fact that someone went to treatment before is an opportunity for that police officer to cheerlead and reward them. I am so glad that you had the courage that you went to treatment, that you raised your hand and said, I want help and I need help. That is an incredible achievement. Now, it's a very small achievement, you know, because it didn't work. But at least the person was willing to say yes to help at some point in their life. And so I challenge our audience today, look for opportunities. They're hidden, but look for opportunities that reward someone for even a small achievement. Why? Because it will endear loyalty to you, and it will also cause someone to continue down the path of doing well because they feel a sense of belonging. I think people, so reward sounds like another synonym would be praise or at least acknowledge. Let people know that, as some people like to say, we catch them doing things right. It's not just that we wait until things are totally complete and perfect to acknowledge or we catch them with every little red pen ding foible along the way that you you acknowledge efforts, intentions, portions, stages that have been met. And it's not to say that you have to be ridiculous in acknowledging all of them, but especially for those who perhaps need a little bit more encouragement, let them know that you're catching them doing something good, giving them that praise. Let them know, I see you. Laura, there's, I worked for a lot of bosses in my career, in both law enforcement here and higher education. And I've worked for many bosses. And unfortunately, there are a lot of bosses out there that never pick up that principle of rewarding. And I just ask people to try it because you'll see a change in a person's behavior over the course of time. And it, by the way, changes you because then it makes you a more positive person by trying to find something that is going well and rewarding that. And it really changes your own outlook. So I challenge you to do it. And speaking of outlook, My last question for you today, Steve, is the outlook for the future generation. If you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, regardless of what the next step was going to be for the graduates, college, trade school, whatever their their focus was, what's the one thing they have to do to be successful? So, Laura, since I'm very smart, I would hire you to help me build a speech. (laughs) (laughs) And it would be based on the analogy of collecting fine art. And so the analogy would work through in this way. Throughout my career, my personal life, I surrounded myself with people that were as good as me, if not better. I never surrounded myself in close friendships with people that were not as motivated, not as skilled, or not as, I don't want to say smart, but just not as good as what I was. I always wanted to surround myself with people that would help me improve. And so the collection of fine art is just that. It's a collection of people around you that can help you improve. I've been around politicians and others that you know would surround themselves with people that were less than them. Yes, people, people that always just praise them and never point out you know, the issues that they see facing, the adverse issues facing that person in their career. And by the way, every politician I've ever known that surrounded themselves with people less than them failed, ultimately failed in their goals. And so I would challenge graduates, you know, to always surround themselves with people better than them. For me, I found them at work when I needed more than just who was at work. 
I went, I joined organizations. I've joined the Pennsylvania Narcotics Officers Association and other federal law enforcement groups. And I would go to their award ceremonies and I would get to know the incredible work that people were doing. Then I'd walk up and hand them my card and attempt to network with them and continue a relationship to find out how they did this spectacular case that I didn't think I was capable of doing. And when I couldn't find physical people, I read books and articles about incredible police officers who did great work and military heroes, living and dead, you know, how they made the ultimate sacrifice at times, but did incredibly heroic work so that I could always put myself in a perspective and to understand that I could always improve. So graduates, get on the path of improvement. Don't ever leave that path, whether you're young or whether you're as old as I am, always seek to improve and surround yourself with great people. Beautiful. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing your wisdom. Uh, Thank you. By the way, how can people learn more about you and about the Center for Addiction and Recovery Education? Sure. Just uh, simply Google us at St. Joseph's University Center for Addiction and Recovery Education. You'll see what we have on our webpage or email me at care at sju.edu. Wonderful. And of course, we'll put all of that in the show notes as well. Thank you for joining us today. Listeners, thank you for tuning in as always. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't done so yet so you never miss an episode. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts too so we can help even more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And of course, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sokola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.